evening. I'm Amna Nabaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the news hour tonight, the House Intelligence Chairman issues an urgent warning about a national security threat and calls on the White House to declassify the information. The political fallout from the historic impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And in this consequential election year, Judy Woodruff visits a mock presidential convention to hear what college-age voters think about the candidates and the nation's deep divisions. I think there's a spotlight on that polarization now, uh, and people are kind of opening their eyes and being like, wow, is this healthy for our country? Welcome to the News Hour. One person is dead tonight and up to 15 hurt after Kansas City's Super Bowl victory parade ended in a burst of gunfire. It's unclear how many of the injured have gunshot wounds, but police say two suspects were arrested. A sea of red and gold had flooded the city's downtown as players paraded on double-decker buses. Then shooting broke out near the scene and people in the crowd, including the mayor, started running. All of a sudden, people started crushing forward. Everybody started running. There was screaming. We didn't know what was happening, but this day and age when people run, you run. And so I put my arms around her, and we tried to push through so people wouldn't run on top of us. And there was a woman crying, saying something about somebody had been shot. The Chiefs said their players were already on buses heading back to their stadium when the shooting started. Police had no initial details on what the motive might have been. In the day's other headlines, Ukraine's military announced it attacked and sank a Russian warship in the Black Sea using naval drones. It happened a few miles off the coast of Crimea near Alupka. Russia annexed that peninsula back in 2014. The Ukrainians released night vision video purportedly showing an explosion that blew a hole in the side of the amphibious landing ship. The vessel could then be seen turned on its side. It's the second time in two weeks that Ukraine has claimed it sank a Russian ship. Family members of Israeli hostages urged prosecutors at the International Criminal Court today to go after Hamas leaders. They argued that heads of the group should be charged and arrested for genocide and other crimes in the October 7th attacks in southern Israel. At a rainy news conference at The Hague, the hostage relatives demanded accountability and justice for those still held in Gaza. The world must wake up. The world needs to know that my sister is in a tunnel somewhere, cold, angry, without medication, and exposed to sexual violence for 131 days. The court's chief prosecutor says he's already investigating alleged crimes committed by both sides in the war. Here at home, New York's highest court heard Harvey Weinstein's appeal today of his landmark rape conviction. The former movie mogul's case came at the dawn of the Me Too movement. His lawyers argue that Weinstein was denied a fair trial because the judge succumbed to intense pressure to make an example of him. He's currently serving a 23-year sentence in state prison. Thousands of Uber and Lyft drivers staged a Valentine's Day strike across the U.S. and Britain today. Workers in Chicago and elsewhere hit the picket lines demanding better pay, benefits and working conditions. They also rallied outside major airports to voice their frustration. Uber has proven time and time again that they're putting profits over people, right? In shareholder meetings, they discuss profits. There's no question about safety, protection from deactivation or compensation. Drivers have been losing money for years. 
The one-day strike was timed to cut into Valentine's traffic tonight, but Uber said it does not expect the walkout to have much impact. And on Wall Street, stocks recovered from Tuesday's sell-off. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 151 points to close at 38,424. The Nasdaq rose 203 points, and the S&P 500 added 47. Still to come on the NewsHour, a former general linked to human rights abuses claims victory in Indonesia's presidential election. Amid concerns about Biden and Trump's age, experts weigh in on how getting older affects our memory. And Judy Woodruff speaks with young voters about the divisive political climate in this election year. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. It was a rare, alarming public statement. One of the handful of members of Congress with the most access to America's secrets warned today of a, quote, serious national security threat. Congressional leaders have since described it as a, quote, serious but not urgent matter. Still, the warning rattled Washington and beyond, as U.S. officials at the same time worked to find at least a pause to the war in Gaza. Nick Schifrin is here following all of these developments and joins us now. So, Nick, what do we know about this, this national security threat? Two officials confirmed to me that Russia recently showcased a new capability in space. Jeff, that is what this threat is all about. Uh, Russia regularly launches space, uh, has space launches. You see one right there. And the officials describe that Russia recently launched a new anti-satellite capability, meaning a satellite that can t attack other satellites. The officials tell me that this satellite, which is possibly nuclear-powered, has an electronic warfare capability to target American satellites that are essential for U.S. military and civilian communication. Now, that public statement that you just referred to right there was from Mike Turner, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. You see him right there. He is a voice for stronger national security, especially for Ukraine, which itself right now is facing serious threats from Russian electronic warfare. Uh, and, of course, this comes as members in the House, uh, especially in the Republican caucus, are resisting some support for Ukraine against Russia in the ongoing war there. Uh, after this statement was released by Turner, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, acknowledged that he was actually supposed to brief Turner and others tomorrow about this matter. Uh, the uh, intelligence committees had this uh, intelligence about two to three weeks ago, according to the officials I speak to. Uh, and they say that while it is very, very important, it is not in any way imminent, uh, as we heard Speaker of the House Mike Johnson admit today. Last month, I sent a letter to the White House requesting a meeting with the president to discuss a serious national security issue that is classified. I want to assure the American people there is no need for public alarm. We are going to work together to address this matter, as we do all sensitive matters that are classified. And beyond that, uh, I'm not at liberty to disclose classified information and really can't say much more. No public alarm, Jeff, but clearly uh, a concern that the U.S. has had for a long time about Russia's anti-satellite capabilities uh, is clearly much higher with this new capability. All right. Well, let's shift our focus to the Israel-Hamas war, which you're also tracking. Israel's prime minister appeared to take a, a hard line in negotiations that would pause the war to allow for the release of some Israeli hostages. What's the latest there? Netanyahu today repeated his hard line that he has said uh, multiple times. One, that there needs to be military pressure on Hamas in southern Gaza in order to make any progress uh, on hostages. And he also again called Hamas's demands uh, when it came to the hostages 
quote, delusional. Uh, and so where we are is that Israel continues to have the hard line, but U.S. officials privately say that Netanyahu is allowing progress to be made on the hostage deal and that negotiations are ongoing, especially after meeting yesterday in Cairo with Israeli U.S. spy chiefs uh, and other diplomats. Uh, and so this is where we are on the hostage deal. Uh, as you uh, recall, two weeks ago, uh, Israel agreed to a plan negotiated by the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt to an initial six-week pause with three phases of hostage releases and three phases of pauses in the war. Hamas's counterproposal last week required an Israeli withdraw from cities first and then from all of Gaza. Israel interpreted that as Hamas remaining in power. So where are we publicly? Netanyahu takes a hard line, and that helps him keep pressure militarily on Hamas, which the U.S. does believe helps uh, in these hostage negotiations. It also helps relieve pressure on Netanyahu within his own government. Because, mm. of course, his own coalition on the right wing, they don't want him to stop this war, and they don't want him to make a deal that would release hostages if it means the end of the war before Hamas is destroyed. So the bottom line, U.S. officials will believe that Netanyahu will allow progress to be made on the hostages as he threatens an assault on Rafah, that is the city in southern Gaza, where 1.3 million Gazans have fled. Uh, and the question tonight is, will Netanyahu allow uh, more progress to be made first, or will there be an assault on Rafah? Yeah. Well, bring us up to speed on Israel's uh, effort in terms of taking out Hamas leadership. So, so the, the target in Rafah right now, Jeff, is what Israel calls the final four battalions uh, of Hamas's military capacity. Uh, the target in Khan Yunis, where Israel has been fighting uh, ferociously for weeks, is underground. And that is the tunnels where Israel believes the leadership of Hamas is hiding. And Israel released yesterday this video uh, that it says uh, shows the leader uh, of Hamas, Yair Sinwar, uh, who walked out there right there. You see that? That's an Israeli animation there, walking out with his family, with his children, uh, and with his wife underneath a tunnel uh, in Han Yunus on October the 10th. Uh, and what Israel says uh, is that Yahya Sinwar was surrounded by millions of dollars uh, as well as civilians. Uh, but above ground in Han Yunus, Israel continues the assault today. Uh, it ordered the evacuation of Nasser Hospital. Uh, and and the, just this afternoon, Doctors Without Borders today criticized that evacuation order, saying that, quote, the people inside have nowhere to go. Either they become an Israeli target in the hospital or enter a, quote, apocalyptic landscape outside of it. Thanks, Shifrin. Thanks so much for that reporting. We appreciate it. Thank you. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas became the first presidential cabinet member to report to work the day after getting impeached. House Republicans eked out exactly the votes they needed to pass the articles in a 215 to 214 vote. Lisa Desjardins joins me now to help us understand what comes next and why Republicans will soon have even more difficulty passing their agenda. So, Lisa, let's start with impeachment, another rare moment in U.S. history. What happens now? 
Okay, lots to talk about here. A reminder what what was passed by narrowly, the most narrow margin possible in the House last night. The impeachment articles, there are two. House Republicans in these articles accuse Secretary Mayorkas of two things. They say willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law and breach of public trust. As you read the 20 pages of the articles, really what they're accusing him of is a litany of grievances about the border crisis itself. There, there has not been any direct evidence that he himself himself went out of his way to make sure that laws were broken. And we know that some Border Patrol associations have said, in fact, they think things have gotten better. Not everyone agrees with that, but this will be a question going forward for the Senate. The other public trust breach was Republicans say he lied to Congress. He says, no, that was a semantic argument over whether the border is, in fact, uh, something that is secure or not. So, okay, let's talk about what's next. That's where we're at. This will move to the Senate. It will move to the Senate in about two weeks. Here's the timeline. February 26th, the managers appointed by the Republicans will carry the impeachment articles over to the Senate. Then the next day, senators will be sworn in as jurors for this potential trial. Now, here's what's interesting, Amna. Uh, the Democrats and Leader Schumer's office believe that there could be other options here uh, to either hold a short trial or move to dismiss this altogether. This is an area of constitutional law that we don't encounter a lot. What might be important here is where Senate Republicans are, of course. They tell me they do not think this is a serious impeachment effort. There are some who will, but the majority of them, including Senator James Lankford, who was working on border security, told me he, they're, they're not taking this seriously. They don't think this reaches the bar for impeachment. So I think right now we're looking at either a very short trial or potentially an attempt at no trial at all. All this comes, of course, after Republicans, thanks to a special election in New York last night, have an even tighter margin they're working with in the House. How is that going to impact things in Congress? Well, the margin, as you say, is tight, and they will lose one vote. So this means that House Republicans will not be able to spare uh, really more than three votes. And depending on the attendance, even fewer than that. Once Tom Suozzi is brought, is sworn in, the former rep winning last night, we expect him to be sworn in February 28th as we see all that impeachment activity going on in the Senate. Now, he said he won, this is notably, notable, not just because of his the fact that he's been in this district for a while, but because of border issues themselves. This race was centered on immigration and the economy, much like the issues all across our country. We won this race. We, you, won this race. Democrats are very happy he won the race, whoever's responsible. Now, I don't think they believe that this tells them everything about November, but I think both sides today, expectations have shifted in the House. Republicans and Democrats telling me now that they think that Democrats more likely to pick up the House this fall. All of that brings us, of course, to the two biggest issues before Congress right now, the Ukraine aid bill and border security funding. Both are now in the hands of that House. Mm -hmm. What's your reporting on whether we're going to see action on either of those? A lot to talk about here. As we've been talking to viewers about, all of this has sort of surrounded House Republicans and that narrow margin, but yet uh, them insisting that they get what they want. House Republicans initially offered a, a very conservative bill called H.R. 2 on the border. The Senate rejected that, didn't take it up. Uh, and then House Speaker Johnson, as we've been saying, and others demanded that border and Ukraine be put together. Then Speaker Johnson turned around and also said, no, I won't accept the compromise in the Senate. So I asked Speaker Johnson today, you have said you will not take up either the border package with Ukraine or the Ukraine package without it. What is it you, Speaker Johnson, are doing on either of those issues? Here's what he responded. 
So what we're doing right now is we, the House is working its will. The House Republican Conference, we just met an, an hour ago uh, with all the members, and there are lots of ideas on the table of how to address these issues. We will address the issues. We'll do our duty on that matter, and, uh, and, and all that begins in earnest right now. Um, now. He ended the news conference right after that. I did not hear a specific answer. Meanwhile, U.S. officials, the administration, argue that Ukraine aid is critical. What are we hearing from them? They are trying to signal to Ukraine, hang in there. Here's what we heard from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin today. The outcome of Ukraine's fight against Putin's imperial aggression will help define global security for decades. And for people <clears throat> of principle and governments of conscience, standing aside while Ukraine fights for its very existence is not an option. Ukraine will not surrender, and neither will we. Those are very strong words. However, there is not yet an option in Congress that will clearly get through to fund Ukraine. There is a majority support in both chambers. It's a needle that needs to be thread. Congress has a time issue here. We're going to be watching closely. A lot of important issues stuck in Congress right now. Lisa, we're so glad you're covering them all. Lisa Desjardins, thank you so much. You're welcome. To discuss the divides in the House over how to handle aid to Ukraine and the border, I'm joined now by Republican Congresswoman Beth Van Dyne of Texas. Congresswoman, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on. I want to begin with where uh, Lisa Desjardins left off there and the Ukraine aid effort moving forward. You've talked before about the need for Ukraine aid. They will soon reach a point where they can no longer defend themselves against Russia without additional aid. Are you worried the longer this takes, with the Republican House and the House now crafting their own bill, the more at risk you're putting Ukraine and the more you're empowering Vladimir Putin? I think, you know, if, if we were interested in helping Ukraine, we would have done it at the beginning of the war instead of waiting for so long. Yes, you know, that, that, that has to be a concern. But our main concern right now is, is making sure that we're crafting a good bill, a solid bill, a bill that's not going to put us any further into debt, and a bill that is prioritizing what's the important thing to most Americans right now, which is the border. So we want to make sure that whatever we are doing, we're making, you know, it's not just making Ukraine safe, but we have to have America safe. And when we look at the disaster that has happened in the last three years at our border, we have got to prioritize that. We're hearing that from Americans all across the country. I want to ask you about the border piece in just a moment, but specifically on Ukraine. How worried are you, again, that the longer this takes, the more at risk Ukraine is? And again, we, don't, we, we would like to be able to move faster. I think there's questions that a number of Republicans have asked, including what the strategy looks like, what's the timeline, what is the commitment, what, is, what does um, winning look like. Um, I think those are still decisions that are being made and we're still negotiating. So again, and, and we, we would like to go faster, but until those questions are answered, I think you're, you, know, you want to make sure that you have a thoughtful bill and that you're just not rushing on because we're, we're putting into a time frame of being between a rock and a hard place. You mentioned wanting to see those border provisions in another bill as well. I should note that the Senate did pass a bipartisan bill that had border provisions in it before Senate Republicans backed away from that and then just a Ukraine and foreign aid bill moved through the Senate. But you're from Texas. You know the challenges at the border, part of this global migration trend we've been seeing, we're seeing in the U.S. too. When it comes to solving the border crisis, though, Congresswoman, why vote to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary rather than back a bipartisan bill that actually had some very conservative immigration reforms in it? 
So I want to be clear, the Senate did not pass that bill. The, that, that bill never came out of the Senate to go to the House. So it was the border bill did on. not, correct. It was just it foreign not. aid that came correct. out. Correct. Yes. Correct. So, so we never saw a Senate bill. You know, we, we saw some text of what was being decided at the, at the Senate side, but it never came over to the House. The House did send over a very strong bill in H.R. 2 that had the provisions that codified what the Trump administration had put in place, specifically the Remain in Mexico policy. It was ending catch and release. It was fortifying the relationships between Immigrations and Customs Enforcement and local law enforcement and state law enforcement. If I may, Congresswoman, as you know, the Senate did not take that bill up. Correct. Correct. And that's what I'm saying. You know, you, you, you asked what the House is doing to be able to look at border, what has to happen. And I think what has to happen is that bill needs to be taken up. H.R. 2 needs to be taken up. I think if the Democrats in the Senate were serious about border security, they would look at the provisions that were in that bill. They would recognize that this is not just a thoughtful bill, but this is a bill that is based on solutions that had worked in the past. The part of the, the Senate bill that was we really did not think was uh, it was going to be dead on arrival was the allowance of 5,000 to 8,500 people, illegal immigrants coming into our country a day. You know, under the Biden administration, we Congresswoman, have Congresswoman, if I may, numbers. actually, the, the automatic trigger to shut down the border was when it actually reached the threshold of 5,000 a day as a, as a day. Actually, the, the 5,000, yeah, that's not actually, that's not, that's not accurate. It was 5,000 on average uh, for a seven-day period, for a week period, but it was 8,500 in one single day. So if you do the math, that's nearly 2 million people coming over a year. Well, per um, those, those numbers, some, of the, some recently we've been seeing those numbers, the border would have been shut down had that kind of automatic trigger been in place. So had they been looking at H.R. 2, we, what we saw under H.R. 2 when those policies were in place was less than 1,000 people coming in of our border every day as opposed to 5,000. If they just were to take the, the policies that the Biden administration from day one took off the table, we could already have had a secure border, and we would not see the ridiculous record numbers of people coming into our border uh, every every day in, in what we've seen since the Biden administration took over. But you asked the question about Mayorkas and why it was necessary to impeach him. American people want to make sure that we are holding these folks accountable. When you have seen 10 million, actually I learned today from Chad Wolf, that it's over 11 million people um, have come into our country illegally in the last three years. When you look at the deaths as a result of fentanyl coming in, over 110,000 dead Americans, five dead Texans every single day as a result of this coming over our border, we have got to get serious about border security and about and Congresswoman, about if, I, if I may, I'm sorry, I apologize for the interruption. I'm not sure about the 11 million number or the source for that. That's not what we've seen lining up with Border Patrol numbers and also as I'm sure you've noted before and seen before yeah we had a briefing yeah we had a briefing today with, with Chad Wolf and that was the number that he had quoted uh, fentanyl largely comes in through legal ports of entry and is the majority of it is brought in by American citizens not you know and, and I know and, and we, we say that because that's what we're catching we're catching the, the drugs that are coming coming over through legal through through our, our, our ports of entry but the fact is, is we have absolutely no idea how much of that drug is coming through illegally that we don't catch and I think it's a, a huge leap of assumption that we're saying, oh, no, it's only being brought in by Americans and it's only being brought in at ports of entry. Well, that's these are U.S. Incorrect. government and Border Patrol numbers, figures and characterizations. Yeah, but that's absolutely, well, it's only catching what's well, coming through those ports of entry. It's which not is the vast majority of the fentanyl coming but into the country no right idea. now. But that's the problem because you don't know. You don't know. We're assuming that we, of the getaways you know, that, that are coming through, that, that that's, they're not being caught. So the answer is we really have no idea how much it's coming in that we're not even seeing. 
Congresswoman, can I ask you, immigration has obviously become a leading campaign concern uh, and an issue for former President Donald Trump. But we know that he didn't want Republicans to back any kind of deal uh, and not to give uh, President Biden a so-called win. Is it fair to say that Donald Trump is calling the shots on what Republicans in Congress will or won't no, do right I, now? Not, not, not that I'm aware of. I, I never got a phone call from the president asking me to, not, to, not to support a bill. I think what we want is our border secure. And what we saw for the bill that was coming out of the Senate is it was going to normalize the record rates of people coming over. It was going to further incentivize um, people coming over by giving them work permits. It would not have secured our border. It would not have prevented illegal immigration. It would only have made the problem worse. Republican Congresswoman Beth Van Dyne from Texas joining us tonight. Congresswoman, thank you for your time. We thank appreciate you very it. Thank much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Former Indonesian General Prabowo Subianto declared himself the winner of Indonesia's presidential election today. Though the final vote count is still pending, exit polling showed he had a huge lead. He addressed cheering supporters after the polls closed. Even though we are grateful, we must not be arrogant. We must not be arrogant. We must not be euphoric. We still have to be humble. This victory must be a victory for all Indonesian people. Prabowo now serves as defense minister under the outgoing president, Joko Widodo. During the country's authoritarian regime, Prabowo was accused of major human rights abuses, including overseeing the abduction of democracy activists, accusations that led to a U.S. travel ban. Indonesia is now the world's third largest democracy. It's a majority Muslim nation spread out across 3,500 miles and 17,000 islands. It sits at a crucial pivot point between China and the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific region. For more on the significance of this moment, we turn to Ben Bland, director of the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House. That's a think tank based in the UK. Thank you for being with us. So Prabowo Subianto, as we mentioned, a former army general linked to human rights abuses, he won with the hugely popular current president's son running as his vice president. Tell us more about these men and what their elections suggest about Indonesia's future. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable result, really, for someone with a checkered track record, as you rightly highlighted, but someone who's shown remarkable persistence. So after he was dismissed from the military uh, in 1998, Prabowo entered the kind of new democratic politics in post-reform Indonesia. And he's tried multiple times to get the presidency, including two really bitterly fought contests against the current president, Jokowi, as he's known, which Prabowo lost. And then Jokowi appointed him his defense minister to sort of bring him into the tent, as it were. And that eventually led to this unofficial alliance where Jokowi's son became Prabowo's VP candidate. And Prabowo has really ridden on the back of Jokowi's, Jokowi's incredible popularity to finally make it, it seems, into the presidential palace. And I think the appeal was in part his own kind of strongman, tough guy image, but that wasn't enough. It was really the ba implicit backing of Jokowi, whose economic reforms, his economic growth um, that he's achieved in Indonesia has made him really, really popular with approval ratings of something like 80% at the end of his second term, which is something that most US presidents would kill for.
Hmm. And as I mentioned, their victory is raising questions about this country's, that country's commitment to democratic values. Indonesia is now the, the world's third largest democracy, and it's a democracy that was hard won after the Suharto regime. So what does their election suggest about uh, democracy and human rights moving forward there? Well, I think there were real concerns that under Jokowi, while he, his economic um, policies were quite popular, some of the checks and balances in Indonesia's democracy were eroded, and that's concerning. And when you kind of hand the levers of a system that's been weakened somewhat to a character like Prabowo, that understandably makes a lot of Indonesian human rights activists incredibly nervous. But I think the important thing to understand is, firstly, most of the Indonesians who voted for Prabowo did it because they want him to lead their democracy. They don't want him to dismantle it. And the second thing to understand, I think, is that you know, while there are concerns about democratic erosion or backsliding, that's not unique to Indonesia. We've seen similar problems in the US, in Europe and elsewhere in the world. And Indonesia still has a highly decentralized system. There still are a lot of channels for opposition in the parliament, through the media, through civil society. And democracy isn't just about elections. It's about what you do afterwards. So I think this battle for power and influence in Indonesia's system is going to continue even if Prabowo is confirmed as the president. That's not the end of the story. I think there's a lot of fight to come. Plus, we have to acknowledge that Prabowo you know, does seem to suggest that he's a changed character. And ultimately, in the end, it was democracy that's allowed him, it seems, to get the top job. In the minute we have left, uh, Ben Bland, this is a region, of course, where the U.S. and China have been on a collision course over Taiwan and a host of other issues. Uh, what are the stakes here? What are the stakes for U.S. interests in the Indo-Pacific? Well, Indonesia is a really, really important non-aligned country. So it's never going to have an alliance with the United States, even though it has quite close military cooperation. It's also not going to be an ally of China, which doesn't have its own allies in any case. But it's a really influential country in terms of the security in the region, in terms of technology, the future of electric vehicles, a lot of key minerals are mined in Indonesia. So the decisions they they work with, whether they use U.S. technology or Chinese technology, are going to have a really big impact on this broader competition. And precisely because Indonesia won't ally with either side, it's a really important country where all sides want to get more influence in different ways. And Indonesia wants to kind of fiercely defend its independence and try and play off the US and China against each other for its own sort of maximum economic benefits. But I think that's going to get harder and harder in a world where US increasingly intense. And there will be pressure on countries such as Indonesia to make many, many difficult choices. Ben Bland, director of the Asia Pacific program at Chatham House. Thanks for your time this evening. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Thanks.
As America braces for a rematch between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, the ages of both men are troubling voters in this election year. Laura Barone-Lopez looks at the questions many have around aging, memory, and the presidency. Amna, age is much more than just a number for both President Biden and former President Trump. It's a potential political liability. We're going to focus on some of the questions people have. But first, we're going to hear from some older Americans, voters who are 70 and above, to get their perspective on this moment and what amounts to an ongoing national conversation about age. My name is Dan Cabrera. I live in Southern California, and I am 71 years old. And neither candidate really is got it together, in my view. They both have serious shortcomings when it comes to their clarity, their intellect. So I'm Dennis Taylor. I live in Helena, Montana, and I'm 77 years old. The whole thing that we're talking about in this election is a number between what, 77, that's my age, the same as uh, Donald Trump, and 81. When Chuck Grassley was running for re-election at 90 for another six-year term, which his voters overwhelmingly gave him, Nobody said a word. I'm Susan Ward. I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm 70 years old. I'm an active 70-year-old, and I wouldn't have the stamina to be president of the United States. And, and so I do think it's worth thinking about. Um, at the same time, this is what we've got. My name is Mary Alice Shaker. I live in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, and I'm 77 years old. I think... President Biden is very competent and very, very knowledgeable. Um, and if he gaffs a little bit once in a while, I don't think that affects his ability. Uh, for the next four years, I'm not so sure. Nobody said anything about Warren Buffett or Cecily Tyson or Jane Fonda or Dr. Fauci or Mick Jagger or Harrison Ford. I mean, think of all the people who in their 80s and 90s contributed to the society. Can you imagine saying that Martin Scorsese needs to take a test before he can do this next movie? And you can look at other major world leaders, in my view, and Zelensky is a, a stellar example, Macron, uh, Rishi from UK, etc. These guys are younger, more energetic, more able, in my view, than either of the two candidates we currently have as leading uh, Republican-Democratic uh, presidential candidates. I, I've seen some people list that medical, you know, cognitive test kind of requirement. And I'm, on one hand, I could say, oh, that's probably a good idea, because then we'd have some more information about older people running for office. But on the other hand, I think to myself, do we do that just for presidents? We worry about implicit bias where we may not know that we have certain biases against certain kinds of people or stereotypes or prejudice that we may have or harbor. In the case of ageism, it's like an explicit bias and everybody's cool with it. I watched with interest the Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Diane Feinstein Feinstein and if they had only retired when they were supposed to retire a lot of the mess we're in right now wouldn't be there. You have to know when it's time. If I were in their shoes, I would step aside. I would step aside and let younger people take over. 
Following verbal stumbles on the campaign trail, polls have consistently shown voters are concerned about the mental fitness of both leading presidential contenders. In a recent poll, an NBC News survey found that 76% of voters had major concerns about President Biden's physical and mental health. Meanwhile, 48% of voters had the same major concerns about former President Trump. To help us understand more about what happens to our brains as we age and for some perspective on these lapses from both men, I'm joined by two experts in memory and cognition. Dr. Dan Blazer is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and behavioral studies at Duke University. Charan Ranganath is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of California, Davis. He's also the author of a new book releasing next week called Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Thank you both so much for joining us. Professor Ranganath, I want to start with you. As we know, President Biden is 81 years old, uh, former President Donald Trump is 77. Help us sort through what we know about what happens to cognition, brain function, and memory as we age, particularly once we get over the age of 75. Yeah, there's actually, it's fascinating because the work has really been evolving. But the basic story is, on average, memory goes down with age. I don't think that's a surprise for many viewers. But if you actually look at different individuals, it really varies. Some people, if you track them over time, they can go into their old age and they're super agers and they're fine. And other people do have a decline over time. And so you really need to ask yourself what's going on with an individual person. Last week, special counsel Robert Hur concluded no charges would be brought against President Biden for his handling of classified documents. But the special counsel commented on the president's memory, saying that the president couldn't remember uh, even within several years when his son, Beau Biden, died. And then President Biden offered a stinging rebuke in response to Robert Hur. But when he took a question from a reporter about Gaza, he mixed up the country of a foreign leader. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. I've been pushing really hard, really hard, to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza. President Biden clearly meant to say the president of Egypt, not of Mexico. But Dr. Blazer, do slips of memory like that signal any real deficits or an ability for a person to make hard decisions? I think that's the critical question. Uh, first off, these types of slips are not uncommon with older persons, especially when they're having to recall a number of facts in a fairly brief period of time, and also when they're under the pressure of having to respond quickly uh, and briefly to uh, questions that are being posed. That doesn't necessarily at all relate to their ability in judgment. What Another element of that judgment is something we call executive function. Uh, that ability to make judgments uh, to really see the big picture. So I think the bottom line for me is that you have to test these individuals in terms of how well they're doing their job, not how well they might perform uh, in a particular situation if they s slip on a particular topic, uh, forget something. I, I think you have to look at the big picture. 
Hmm. Dr. Runganoth, if you watch President Biden now versus eight years ago, there's no doubt that his speech is at times a little less crisp. He might take some longer pauses. But what can we know and what uh, don't we know by watching him? So first of all, I just want to be clear that I'm a scientist and so I can't diagnose anyone. Uh, what I can say is, is that these verbal slips that Dr. Blazer brought up, and it's, he said it perfectly, they're not even memory slips per se. They're really difficulties that, you know, you just get a little bit slower to, to come up with words and sometimes you slower to catch the errors when they happen. So I wouldn't even call those memory slips per se. I think sometimes people judge the appearance uh, of uh, something like that and they think that there's some memory problem, but that's not really a memory problem. Uh, I know President Biden had a stutter when he was growing up, and that actually also demands more executive function just to articulate. So I, I think that might be factoring in, too. But again, I totally concur with Dr. Blazer that you really need to ask these questions in a real way as opposed to just superficial observations. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Blazer, Trump himself has repeatedly mixed up people as well, including Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi, when he was talking about the January 6th insurrection. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, you know, they did you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything, deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, so whatever they want, they turned it down. Dr. Blazer, when you watch these two men, Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, is it possible at all to gauge their fitness for office? I think it's difficult. I mean, you might look in terms of sort of the tone of what they're saying. Uh, people will make judgment based on that. But in terms of their cognitive function, I think it's quite difficult. Uh, first off, I think given one test or two tests, it's just going to be totally insufficient to do that. Uh, you need tests that are serial over time to really determine if there really has been significant deterioration. But in addition to that, you need a battery of tests. And personally, I think that what is most helpful is an honest opinion from the people surrounding them who might give the type of information that would say, we believe this person is actually functioning well or not. In a political environment, that's going to be very difficult to obtain. Dr. Ranganath, generally speaking, what are typical signs of cognitive decline and when does it tend to impact people and how? One of the interesting things is I've seen many, many patients with memory disorders, and some of them are even on the younger side, and they can be very articulate, and yet they have disabling memory disorders. So the surface looks can be uh, deceiving, but I like to say there's forgetting and there's forgetting. So just in terms of lowercase forgetting, that would be the day-to-day -day stuff that I think we all do, where you have something and you know it's there, but you just can't find it. And then maybe even a few days later, that memory pops up into your head. And so in a technical term, we call that retrieval failure. And so these retrieval failures are benign, but they happen a lot as you get older. Now, separate from that is what I would call forgetting with a capital F. And when you that by that, what I mean is that basically the memory is not there. Maybe it was never formed or maybe it's just gone. So for instance, if you misstated, for instance, uh, Egypt and uh, Mexico, or if you had trouble remembering the year that something happened, I would say, well, that's more in the, the benign category. 
But if you forget that you met the president of Mexico, or if you forget significant events from these important times in your life, then I would say that's a real memory disorder because those are things that I would expect people to remember. Dr. Blazer, you mentioned the political environment, and there's been a lot of words thrown around uh, this election cycle, loaded with partisanship, words like senile, deranged, dementia. Do you think any of these have validity? Well, they might have validity in some context, but I'm not certain they have validity here. Uh, that's, I think that's going to be one of the major challenges we see over the next year, and that is people are going to throw terms around that neuroscientists, that physicians are going to be, have used traditionally for quite different reasons than what are being used in this particular situation of two candidates who are in the public eye and who are being asked to make statements about situations that uh, are, are complex and they have to make those statements on the spot and they're not giving a chance to really correct uh, areas that they, they, may, they may make. Professor Ranganath, is there a word of advice that you would give to the public or to the press uh, about making assumptions in this moment about memory or age or verbal lapses? Absolutely. I think when people hear something like a loaded term, like an elderly man with a poor memory, it just activates all these stereotypes that people have about aging as this inevitable slide towards uh, senescence, right? There's actually a lot of abilities that remain stable or even get better with age. So for instance, knowledge, like the kind of knowledge that you'd hope a president would have that remains stable or can even improve. Likewise, you see things like compassion and emotion regulation that can be improving with age or at least remain stable. I think a lot of what people judge is based on surface characteristics that are dominated by confidence or by physical presence rather than the more substantive issues. Dan Blazer of Duke University and Charan Ranganath of UC Davis, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. The winner of the Republican primary won't be officially decided until the party's convention this July. But this past weekend, in the small town of Lexington, Virginia, nearly 2,000 college students held a convention of their own. Judy Woodruff visited the conference to speak with young Republicans and Democrats about their views on politics in America during this unusual primary season. It's all part of her ongoing series, America at a Crossroads. Despite looking like a wild party, this raucous parade in Lexington, Virginia, kicked off one of the most accurate political prediction projects in the country. Mock Con, a simulated convention students at Washington and Lee University have put on every four years for over a century. As the students put their creativity and passion on display with floats for each of the 50 states and U.S. territories, some of the biggest names in the Republican Party descended on their small town. Donald Trump Jr. Uh, I want to thank the support that we're seeing out here, which is absolutely incredible. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. If there has ever been a time in our country and our nation's capital when we needed new ideas and fresh perspectives, it would be today. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. Since 1948, you've been 100% accurate in nominating the eventual Republican nominee. And many others. 
The weekend was the culmination of years of preparation, with students from across the political spectrum staging a presidential nominating convention of the party that doesn't currently hold the White House. So this year, it was the Republicans' turn. MockCon really is a like bipartisan um, organization. We have a lot of liberal students and a lot of conservative students. On a campus that students say is roughly split between Democrats and Republicans, 98% of them participate in MockCon to try to accurately predict the outcome of this summer's Republican National Convention, down to the delegate. Connor McNamara is the president of the College Democrats. Uh, so it's been really interesting looking at each state and, each and all the polling and all the demographic information to see how that affects the race. Just like the actual Republican primary right now, this year's mock con felt like a foregone conclusion, as former President Trump appears to have all but sewn up the nomination long before most states cast their votes. It's my honor to welcome our next speaker, Donald Trump Jr. There is a reason I can assure you that they're trying to put my father in jail for 700 years, and it's not because anyone really believes January 6th was an insurrection. But among the students we sat down with, we found views across the spectrum after they listened to this year's speakers. What do you make of all the issues out there swirling around former President Trump? What I make of that is, you know, what's, what's the alternative? Well, I've seen nothing but more chaos from the Biden administration, from the Trump administration. Trump, yes, mean tweets. He's going to say some off-color things, which isn't great. But at, the, at its core, what's better? A, a loudmouth president who gets things done or a quiet, politically correct president that does nothing for the American people? Angel Pilkey Chavez, a self-identified Democrat, not surprisingly disagreed. I think Biden has done, you know, a pretty good job. Um, there are, you know, some grievances, but... Um, I think he's doing a good job with um, what he's been given. The students heard different perspectives from other Republican speakers, like Virginia Governor Youngkin. We must come together around a nominee with universal support in order to usher in a new era, not of Republicans versus Democrats, but of an unrivaled America. And Georgia Governor Kemp. This election should be about results, not personalities. It should be about the future of our country, not a race to the bottom. Robert Misch is a junior on MockCon's political steering committee who applauded their focus on the future. Somewhere along the line, Republicans have basically said, we're going to try and align ourselves with Donald Trump. And I don't think that's a smart strategy, but I'm constantly reminded by people like Glenn Youngkin, people like Brian Kemp, how Republicans can win and also appeal to the middle of the country who's not necessarily liberal or conservative, but just wants to see strong, competent leadership. Claire Cerrone, a senior, wrote this year's Republican platform for MockCon. The Republican Party platform is a dedication to the American voter. That process was complicated by the fact that the party hasn't actually produced a platform since 2016. Like many students who participated in the research for MockCon, she had to take a hard look at the party's current policy positions coming into 2024, as well as her own. I would say I'm more of a moderate Republican. Um, 
the platform language, it was just, it's so different than anything I've ever written ever because the rhetoric is so negative and a lot of it's just like tearing down Biden and the Democrats and sort of getting at the other side and it's not very like goal focused or like, here's what we're going to do about X, Y, and Z. I definitely kind of stepped away from this process, maybe a little bit less Republican than I was. And I guess that's kind of the goal and everything you do to learn something about yourself. Was it was it a particular issue or or a or a collection of of issues? I kind of disagree with the party on abortion, gun rights, and some foreign policy issues. It was hard to write with something I disagree with. Across the country, a large majority of young Americans align themselves with democratic ideas, and President Biden will need those voters to turn out this fall to hold on to the White House. But even among college Democrats like Pilkey Chavez, there was something to learn from seeing and studying the other side up close. I don't believe, you know, all Trump supporters are racist. They're just very discontent. And I think Democrats hear everything that's being said. I don't think they listen to what's being said. Do you have confidence that we can get to a place where the people can have disagreements but not hate each other over it. For the most part, people aren't happy with the current political environment. Maybe being around like all these different views this weekend with MockCon maybe has inspired me a little bit. I, I am confident that we can push forward. I think we have so many different people and so many diverse ideas. Um, I, I think that does make us stronger. Student Republicans said they too look forward to a time when the country isn't so divided. I think the average American doesn't want to hear about politics every day. And so I try to surround myself with people like that, because I know that I can be annoying if I'm just spewing my political views all the time. I think there's a spotlight on that polarization now, uh, and people are kind of opening their eyes and being like, wow, is this healthy for the people in our country to spend their lives worrying about disagreements with one another rather than trying to focus on the things that bring people together. Freshman Alex Kagan says he's able to maintain relationships across political divides. I do relate more um, to people that have similar values to me, similar life experiences, but um, I'm able to uh, be friends and I have friends that politically disagree with me. I think that's great. School. I've known a lot of people that have gone to Washington and Lee University. It's a great school. I hope I get your endorsement. Despite the doubts and questions, Donald Trump got the prediction he wanted. The 28th Washington and Lee University mock convention has nominated Donald John Trump. It was a 50-state sweep. As Billy Ray Cyrus brought the convention to a close, the final tally was decisive. Donald Trump won all but 76 of the 2,429 delegates at stake. Nikki Haley picked up 64 from seven states in the District of Columbia. Ron DeSantis took nine, and Vivek Ramaswamy three, both in Iowa. We'll be watching come July to see how close these numbers are to the real GOP convention outcome. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Judy Woodruff in Lexington, Virginia.
And before we go, an update to our earlier reporting on today's Super Bowl parade shooting. Kansas City police say the number of people with gunshot wounds has risen to 22, eight of whom have life-threatening injuries, and three suspects are now detained. And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for joining us and have a good evening.